the Drawing and Dialogue. My name is Kathy G. Johnson. And I'm Remus Jackson. We are cartoonists, scholars, and educators. On Drawing and Dialogue, we put comics into historical and educational contexts. My segment explores theoretical and historical analyses of our topic. And I talk about our topic through the lens of pedagogy and education with a focus on practical application. I work with K-12 students in schools in addition to alternative educational settings. My new graphic novel, The Breakaways, is out now from first second. You can order it at thebreakawayscomic.com. It makes a great Christmas present or ever other holiday giving presents things that you celebrate. And if you don't, you still could give someone a present. Um, And I have a master's degree in art education. And I'm a PhD student at the University of Florida's English program. Um, My research focuses on gender, critical prison studies, and museum studies. And I also mostly make self-published comics. So here we are, episode 26. Yeah. And we are going to be revisiting a topic that we've done before. Do you want to tell us more about it, Remus? Yeah. So we're going to be talking a bit about museums, and I'm going to be talking sort of about um, the development and the early history of art museums and a little bit about like sort of the contemporary shift in museums. Um, So this is building on this conversation that we sort of started in episode 10, which is the episode about the canon, right? Because museums... um, The art museum sort of shaped the canon and controls the canon. And then I'm actually going to be sort of jumping off of what Remus is doing um, to talk about how education in museums, so museum education, which is a totally different facet of education, which we haven't actually talked a lot about. Remus has a history doing some museum education, but it's not really Mm -hmm. been a focus of an episode before. So... I'm going to sort of talk about the history of museum education, which I'm guessing is going to overlap a little bit with what Remus is doing, but I don't know. So let's see what happens. <laughs> yeah, I I don't think I'm actually not talking about education that much, but museum education is actually like the field I want to work in. So I'm like super excited to hear your history of it. And technically, it's what my degree is in. Like, I have a teaching and learning and art and design MA. So most of the time, if you're going to education, you would get a MAT, like a master's of teaching. But mine is sort of like a weirder master's for museum education, like after school, nonprofit Mm -hmm. education. So I have like this nebulous education degree. And then, of course, I went right into schools. I mean, I love community (laughs) centers. And I've I've done some talks. I got some future talks at museums. If you want me to teach Mm -hmm. at your museum, email me. I'm happy to do it. But yeah, that's technically what my training is in. Yeah, also same. So I'm going to just jump us right into it because totally. I really love this topic. Um, so I'm going to start with just sort of the early history of museums uh, generally, like the concept of museums. Um, and this is a lot of this is actually going to be um, I have some sources, but I'm largely paraphrasing my notes from my museum studies class. Uh, Why so, not? Yeah. <laughs> and that's literally what we're supposed to be doing, right? So you don't yeah. have to go do, get a master's degree to know this stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I am now happily sharing all of this with you. Um, <laughs> but essentially, the origin of museums, at least in the European sense, is traced to um, cabinets of curiosity, which were also known as a uh, wonder camera. So they were generally created by a single scholar and they were literally like 
a cabinet is a little misleading because they're usually a room, um, but like a room that has stuff in it put together by a single collector and then people could like come and look at the items. Mm. So like the earliest uh, written account and actually illustration of a uh, a natural history uh, cabinet was uh, the Del Historia Naturale from 1599, which was put together by Ferrante Imperato. That's the person's name? Yeah. Ferrante Imperato? Yeah. <laughs> it's such name. a good name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I got excited. It's okay. It's a good name. So, um, Ferrante Imperato's Del Historia Naturale uh, is like the earliest, and we'll link in the show notes because I just think the illustration is really cool because um, it shows you sort of like how the room was laid out. Um, and as a sort of enticing tidbit to get people to go and look at the illustration, there is a full crocodile on the ceiling Ooh, of this oh, cabinet. Oh, I'm looking at it now. Yeah, it's great. It rules. Um, so, like I said, Wonder Camera were generally created by a single scholar, and the objects that were collected were believed to be interconnected by some singular purpose that could shed light on man's place within existence. So this is like Renaissance era, right? So this blog post from the uh, Biodiversity Heritage Library mm. um, on Ferrante Imperato notes that, um, quote, humanism was one of the most predominant movements in Italy during the Renaissance. So uh, Imperato was Italian. Um, and some humanists believe, among other things, in a notion of universalism, the idea that all things and all people were connected by some shared visible and or invisible similarities and all created by the divine. Um, the Renaissance humanists endeavored to use reasoning to explain unknown aspects of nature, which developed into the study of natural history. Empirical observations and experimentation were used to make conclusions about the physical world. Thus, the Renaissance and the creators of the Cabinets of Wonder, um, which are Cabinets of Curiosity, were important in setting the stage for extraordinary advances in scientific knowledge in the decades following. So I'm highlighting that because I'm going to talk a little bit about our old friend, the Enlightenment again. <laughs> and humanism sort of like brings us into that like sort of Enlightenment ideal, but also like that sort of burgeoning interest in like imperial, scientific, like uh, we start measuring things and collecting things and trying to make sense of it, right? Mm. So I am going to also note because I think this is really interesting, that there is a hierarchical taxonomy of collecting. So three types of items were indispensable in forming a Kunstkammer or an art collection for a cabinet of curiosity, right? The first, like the top, was sculptures and paintings. The second is, quote, curious items from home or abroad. Mm. <laughs> and the third is antlers, horns, claws, feathers, and other things belonging to strange and curious animals. Mm. And one, I just think that's kind of funny. But two, um, the curious items from home or abroad also starts to hint at one of the other sort of main things of both the Enlightenment and the sort of development of museums, which is colonialism. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess the Kunstkammer, Kunst being... Uh art um yeah. it, it makes sense because they don't have photography right so if they're trying mm -hmm. to look at things and experience other places having paintings and drawings is really in sculpture is really the only way they can share those images so yeah and stuff that they just took and like brought back like oh physical the, objects. they're taking the art oh okay yeah right. so there's sculptures and paintings is the first category and then the second category is just curious items from home or abroad so right like so stuff like cultural was... artifacts essentially yeah. yeah 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 like sort of early ethnographic uh objects and then sort of the last thing I'm going to highlight from the sort of cabinet curiosity era is Frederick Reichu is um, Dutch, 
uh, is sort of the one who where the term like curator emerged. Um, he made these displays that blurred the difference between like a scientific display and vanitas art. So he like artfully arranged his objects into these little like still lives. And so that's sort of where pe- people like the word like he was called a curator. And that's sort of where like the idea of curator comes from. Mm. So now I'm going to move us into the enlightenment. I'm moving quickly. <laughs> oh, who cares? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I'm like, sorry. Obsessed. I mean, I guess our listeners might care, but go <laughs> no, for it. Chug a lug a lug. I want to, and the reason, well, the reason I'm doing this is because I want to, like, tracing, like, the split in art museums, like, specialized museums became a thing during the Enlightenment, so, like, now I'm moving directly into art museums, and also, I'm, like, obsessed with the Enlightenment, (laughs) because, like, everything comes back to it constantly, Mm. um, so this is from John Simmons' excellent book, Museums of History, which was published in 2016. Um, just a little, like, facts about the Enlightenment. Quote, the Enlightenment was a period of aggressive imperial expansion by many European countries and the time when the unspeakable horror known as the Atlantic slave trade reached its height. Between the 16th and 19th century, more than 13 million Africans were forcibly captured, removed from their homelands, and enslaved in European colonies around the world. There were many advances in learning during the Enlightenment brought about by the introduction of new methodologies such as empiricism, experimentation, and inductive methods of reasoning, as well as the institutionalization of science through the formation of the first scientific organizations. At this time of the emergence of modernity, the making of collections, the accumulation, classification, study, arrangement, and display of material objects was crucial to the examination of role of the role of humans in the universe. Um, He also notes later on that objects of art, particularly paintings and sculptures, began to be viewed as a means to educate the public as well as a way to instill a sense of morality that would make the populace more acceptant of government by enlightened rulers. So that's the thing I'm going to hit really hard (laughs) is sort of like the the purpose, like early public art museums were partially like sort of like what happened with them and like the way they were curated and the way that like you had to sort of teach the public to look at the objects was very very much tied into like a way of naturalizing aesthetic values of a particular nation um and you see this a lot especially in like britain and france and again this is part of colonialism right is like establishing this sort of like the west as like the the dominant aesthetic culture as opposed to like the foreign exoticized east. So moving mm-hmm. into a little bit more specific history about museums. Um this is from Museum Skepticism, A History of the Display of Art in Public Galleries by David Carrier. It was published in 2006. The birth of the public art museum was intimately bound up with the rise of academic art history, new aesthetic theories, and the development of democracy. Once high art moved from churches, temples, and princely collections into the public space of the museum, visitors needed to be educated on how to aesthetically appreciate the objects. Um, So the big example of this um, that a lot of, like, art museum historians, like, land on is the Louvre. So the Louvre was... The, the royal mm. palace, right? Uh, this is sort of our French Revolution history, right? Um, in France. And it always had art in it. And then the king started, like, letting people in. If you had, like, there's a certain, like, dress code you had to follow, which I found really interesting. Like, they would even sell, like, outside the Louvre. They sold, like, the types of buckles and stuff you needed to be admitted in. So if you didn't have them, you could, like, buy them and dress up so you could go see the art. But then... It became public mm. on August 10th, 1793, because during the revolution, 
the Louvre was sort of taken, right? Like, um, this is an extremely gloss, like a very quick gloss of the French Revolution, basically. But the French Revolution happened, and the Louvre ceased belonging to the king, <laughs> right? So, writing on that, uh, Carrier said, Public mm-hmm. museums admitting every visitor appeared near the end of the old regime in Roman and the German-speaking countries, including E. Capitolini, which is like the oldest public gallery, I think, in Europe, and it's in Rome. But the great model is the Louvre, the formal royal palace open to the public on August 10th, 1793. Um, once the king admitted any well-dressed gentleman to view his treasures, it was easy to think the royal collection belonged to the nation. Uh, and then once the revolution happened, art in the nation's museums was really owned in common by all citizens. The public art museum thus is linked with the French Revolution and the novel aesthetic theories of German philosophers. So... Um, this is not, this is like a little contested, but essentially the idea, or like, it's accepted, but there are people that push back. I don't want to like paint this as like the only history, because I feel like that's like the antithesis of what we do here. But it is really common for like the birth of the public art museum to be tied to the idea of the French Revolution, and thus like democratization and enlightenment and sort of like the shift from old regime to new sort of like modern ideas of government. Yeah. I have a paper Mm. called Decentralizing the History of French Art, which is specifically about decentralizing the Louvre in this history. I Mm. don't have like a summary of it because I didn't end up using it because it actually doesn't have a lot to do with education. But I can uh, link it um, in our citations if anyone's interested in in learning more decentralizing of that history. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So for like a more like broad... um, this is uh, written by Elizabeth Rodini. It's actually from an open access online course on um, the history of art museums, which I think is extremely cool. So the Enlightenment is when we begin to see specialized collections, including museums devoted only to art. The Capitolini, which I mentioned, uh, which o- opened in Rome in 1734. So before the Louvre, but because it doesn't play into this narrative of sort of revolution, mm-hmm. people don't really talk about it. Um, the Louvre, 1793, um, and the and I'm going to butcher this, Alta Pinakothek in Munich? Uh, tech. It would be a tech. Tech. Yeah. Okay. It Alta Alt- Pinakothek. Uh, Pinakothek, which is fun to say. <laughs> that is fun to say. In Munich uh, in 1836. Similarly, dedicated collections of plants, botanical gardens, animals, zoological gardens, and eventually natural history and ethnographic objects emerged. One thing these collections shared was a scheme of linear didactic layouts de- dedicated to narratives of development and progress. Um, in art museums, this meant the chronological arrangements subdivided by nation, local school, and artist, and based in the comparison of visual forms. For instance, the idea that ancient art leads to the Renaissance, which leads to French neoclassicism, or that Egyptian art was less developed than Greek art. Um, Using different examples, the same history of art could be repeated in different places, much like a scientific demonstration or a proof. A similar general narrative continues to define many art museums today. So that's the canon, right? Like, that's literally, like, essentially, like, part of this development of what an exhibition was. Because this is what we're talking about, is, like, the the cabinet of curiosity, the sort of, like, where it's just a room, that's all one exhibition. And the way the objects were arranged was more about, like, the individual scholar like trying to make a like these are all connected basically then we move into these like exhibitions in these spaces where it's about 
trying to create this linear narrative of progress. This is also tied in, um, because this is enlightenment, this is also all like very heavily tied into like the development of the novel and also the development of the prison. Um, But that's a really long other conversation. (laughs) Um, Well, I mean, what sort of is blowing my mind. So like they're going from ancient art to like Egyptian art and then like sort of lies of development Mm -hmm. because like, I don't know if Egyptians were talking to Europeans with their artwork. Right. Um, So it'd be like within one culture. Right. But like, that's sort of blowing my mind because that's exactly what old concepts of child development of children's art is like, as they grow, they get more details and they get more realism, even though that's like, shouldn't be the case at all. Like art doesn't develop into, you're a good artist because you can dr- draw very realistically, right? Yeah, like that's yeah. Not- <laughs> no, that's 100%. That's 100% what it like. And it's all very about sort of, again, naturalizing the aesthetics of the colonial countries. Yeah, that's, um, that's sort of blow. That's like, I can't believe that Obviously, child develop like child development has uh, colonial roots, but that's sort of blowing my mind a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm like, like I said, obsessed with the Enlightenment because a lot happens. Anyway, and it's sort of continuing on that. I love I, whenever I have this conversation. I really like to tag in Inderpal Grewal, who is a transnational feminist, um, and who doesn't necessarily write about like art history per se, um, but in her 1996 book Home and Harem. Um, she has a chapter where she analyzes uh, museum guidebooks and travel mm, guides from the cool. British um, from the British Museum specifically because she's looking at the relationship between Britain and colonial India. And so she talks about with the idea of like the new visitor to a museum. Like so this is a public museum that people can just go to, right? Um, quote, this new visitor absorbed alien histories and cultures within the historical context of his own history, whose referent was, as Susan Stewart puts it, the interiority of his own self. Thus, the 1826 uh, Museum Guidebook, and she's talking again specifically about the British Museum, which is not an art museum, it's like an everything museum, mm-hmm. um, but it does have like art in it. So thus, the 1826 Museum Guidebook claimed that with its help, even a one-day visit to the museum taught something. So again, that's sort of didactic, like, you come to the museum, you walk through the layout, the narrative progresses, and you're, like, learning about history. Um, right. That sort of um, is part of what I'm going to be talking about, the idea, it, that early idea of museums where you where just the public going and looking yeah. is enough to teach them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, and again, and a part of this is like, as Grohl puts it, the interiority. So this is like for your own self benefit, right? It's not for community benefit. Furthermore, the prime, and I'm continuing with Grohl. Furthermore, the primacy of the self was suggested by the aesthetic that was disseminated by the guidebooks. Greek art, for instance, was interpreting as validating and inscribing English values. The neoclassicism of the first half of the 19th century was visible in the valorization of Greek art and its participating participation in creating an ideal English subject, unquestioningly masculine, but one who was receptive to a moral art and who immediately recognized the purity of classical forms. Classicism was believed to be the apotheosis of all art forms, one that was seen as part of the European heritage. It stood a proof of the superiority of the West over the barbaric East, and as such, it presented one more reason for the civilization of the East through European colonization. Objects were therefore described 
and interpreted in ways that taught aesthetic appreciation to a public that had no aesthetic education, while paradoxically suggesting such a transcendent aesthetic did not need to be taught. The audience was instructed on how to read and interpret these objects, thereby forming their taste for them by means of guidebooks that had already laid down their aesthetic judgments and therefore eliminated the necessity to interpret. The internalization of a naturalized aesthetic validated the guidebook. So again, I just think that's so interesting. Like the way that early art museums were teaching the general public how to read art, but we're doing it mm. in a way that made this idea of like um, European civilization and like Greek neoclassical forms being like the height of art, a natural idea, right? Mm. Where we're just sort of like, yeah, like, of course this is good art and there's no like questioning of it. And that's still like a thing today. Um I mean, and I see it so much just in my classroom in sort of the everyday zeitgeist ideas of what good art is, mm -hmm. of what our goals should be in the art classroom. It's always like teaching them how to draw good and like rather than, you know, like thought and ideas and all that stuff. And it's definitely, you know, like a goal of mine as an art teacher to not be about reverence of that kind of thing yeah yeah i want to really briefly touch on the contemporary conversation around museums because it's actually like a really interesting time um so what i'm going to be talking about now is the turn towards what's called new museology if you like are interested at all in museums in 2019 you will encounter new museology frequently so i am th this I'm going to talk briefly about um, Stephen Stephen Whale and John Cotton Donna. Um, so Donna, I've actually cited in the canon episode. He wrote the Gloom of the Museum in mm. 1917, um, and he's sort of considered the grandfather of museum research and ideology. Um, but he wasn't technically a museum professional; he was a librarian. So he was like a really within the field of museum professionals. Like people didn't like. <laughs> <laughs> like, mm. like I was asking my professor about it because um, we were talking about Whale, who I'm going to get to. And I was like, but didn't Donna like come before Whale? And she was like, yeah, but everyone hated him. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so I'm not going to read. I'm not going to like bring back in um, Gloom of the Museum. It, I'll cite it again. Um, it is like a very interesting essay. It's from, like I said, 1917. So this is like very early critique of the museum. But then in the 1990s. Um, this guy, Stefan Whale, comes along and Whale is like the first to really criticize what museums are doing. Like that's like a radical thing. So Whale's like this radical break in writing about museums. Mm. Um, and he's responding to and building on Donna like 80 years later. So he basically writes this book in the 90s that is called Making Museums Matter. And talks about how like uh, again museums sort of all their they are warehouses and what they should be doing is serving the public right so museums need to sort of reevaluate what they're doing and he starts to trace these like paradigms of like how museums are shifting from being like basically just a room that holds objects where the obsession is up the collection to like how museums now um are interested in sort of public policy and being sort of community oriented right like the, in 1999 he writes an article an emerging new paradigm where he literally talks about the shift from object oriented to community oriented um 1990 yes so recent yeah. really recent 
um, which is why this is so interesting, right? So basically, he sort of is the one that sort of starts this idea of new museology, which is like such a thing now. Um, And the idea of new museology is basically like how museums are responding to like feminism and social justice and critical race theory um, and all these different things. And like really trying to like shift what the meaning of a museum is. And to sort of talk about that, I'm going to talk about... Um, so there's a couple of organizations that sort of oversee museums. There's the American Alliance of Museums. There's also ICOM, which is the International Council of Museums. Um, so the International Council of Museums was established in the 40s. They put out, they like create an international definition for museums. That's like one of their jobs, right? I want to note that the ICOM definitions are not legally binding in any way. Like there's no like legal ramifications but like a lot of countries do use the icom definition to write policy for funding which is why Mm. um it's like important so for about 50 years uh their definition was with a few changes and i'm quoting the one from 2007 specifically a museum is a non-profit permanent institution in the service of society and its development open to the public which acquires conserves researches communicates and exhibits the tangible and intangible heritage of humanity and its environment for the purposes of education study and enjoyment pretty straightforward right yeah so this is where it gets fun so this twenty this proposed twenty nineteen definition from the ICOM's commission for a new definition um, was led by a Danish curator named um, Jette Sandal, and the definition is. Museums are democratizing inclusive and polyphonic spaces for critical dialogues about the past and the futures. Acknowledging and addressing the conflicts and challenges of the present, they hold artifacts and specimens in trust for society, safeguard diverse memories for future generations, and guarantee equal rights and equal access to heritage for all people. Museums are not for profit. They are participatory and transparent and work in active partnership with and for diverse communities to collect, preserve, research, interpret, exhibit, and enhance understandings of the world, aiming to contribute to human dignity and social justice, global equality, and planetary well-being. So, that definition, how does that hit you, Kathy? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> i mean yeah <laughs> right i think it rules personally but yeah as you might imagine this has caused a huge conflict i bet at last i checked they were supposed to vote on it in like i want to say september and it keeps getting delayed because people are so mad about it um the chair of the international committee of museology literally resigned from his position over this proposed definition. Why? And he said, um, and I'm going to link an article that sort of captures all the drama, but he said, a definition is a simple and precise sentence characterizing an object, and this is not a definition, but a statement of fashionable values, much too complicated and partly apparent. It would be hard Mm. for most French museums, he's French, starting with the Louvre, to correspond to this definition, consider themselves as polyphonic spaces. The ramifications could be serious. So, like, a really big thing right now, and this is what I mean about, like, the new museology debate being so contemporary, is that, like, this fight is happening this year. That, like, this is, like, museums are having a really hard time, and it's very much like the old guard, uh, which, not to pick on the Louvre, but, like, the Louvre um, and other sort of, like, established old guard museums um, against sort of the the newer um, museums and museum professionals who are part of sort of new museology who like want to move the field 
um, into thinking about like what is the role of museums in terms of social justice? How do we guarantee access? Like this sort of thing. Yeah. So just super interesting conversations that are happening right now. I can see because like so much of some attitudes towards art is just this inherent value. Yeah. Right? Like a painting has an inherent value. And I can see how that can conflict where they don't necessarily want to confront just how political art can be and a museum can be like they just want it to be like this is inherently valuable rather than it is political for us to be showing these works in this context yeah 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 yeah, exactly who is it serving yeah that's like the whole conversation is that um the sort of new museology is saying like there is no way to be apolitical. Like what you choose to show right. is political. How your museum right. runs is political. And the and I can think of the French um, attitudes towards artwork being really uh, conflicting with that. Yeah, exactly. Um, so as I'm not going to go too deep in this, but I did want to shout out just a couple of like examples of new museology um, in case people are like interested in this. Cool. Starting with uh, a group called Mass Action. So Mass Action stands for Museums as Site for Social Action. My professor, Dr. Portia Moore, is actually like one of the organizers with Mass Action. So they have a website where they collect sort of like resources for like – uh, if you participate in mass action, you essentially uh, – it says participating museums will act and build on the commitments to equity and social change um, agreed on at the 2017 convening, uh, creating more inclusive practices at their own institutions in the field at large. So they have like an annual – what they call a convening um, where they sort of the, – all the museums that participate um, send representatives and they sort of get together and build on like how do we continue to push forward this idea of like dedication to equity um, and social justice. Cool. Um, and they also like collect resources and stuff like that they also there's also the empathetic museum which is a website which offers metrics for like what they call the empathetic museum maturity model the maturity model basically talks about um different characteristics of and then like how of um empathy and then like how mature the museum is in it so you can sort of like use it as a rubric to uh help your institution um so there's civic vision uh i.e how the museum expresses empathy externally through its civic role institutional body language i.e how the museum embodies empathy through staffing policies workplace culture and structure etc community resonance timeless timeliness and sustainability and performance measures so again similar to like mass action they just also offer resources and like have sort of tools to help museum professionals sort of continue to push their stuff i also wanted to highlight uh since it ties directly to and this is a really interesting article that we talked about in class um and it ties sort of what we were talking about with like the history of enlightenment the enlightenment and like colonization this is an article from the new york times called displaying not hiding the reality of slave labor and art and in this article it's by alina tungand and it's from october of 2019 so it's very recent and basically uh tungand in this article is like highlighting how different museums are trying to like make visible um the sort of invisible reality of slave labor in art um so they talk about like the chrysler museum of art just did this exhibition about uh thomas jefferson's architecture and as part of that exhibition they included um for instance a brick that has a handprint from one of the um enslaved laborers who would have built um the design 
they have like tools they have a portrait of isaac granger who was an enslaved metalsmith um so they're like trying to highlight that thing and they also talk about other museums like the worcester art museum in massachusetts and the harvard art museum have both like added to their labels information about like um if there's a portrait of a person who like earned their money through slave labor they have added to the labels like information about that Mm. so there's ways that like again this is sort of an example of like how contemporary museums are trying to sort of like do work to like basically address these histories that have been sort of Mm -hmm. taken for granted i'm gonna touch on that a little bit too myself yeah cool cool so that is what I'm going to share, and now I'm going to pass it to you. Do you have any questions before? You did an amazing job, and you also did an amazing job of jumping over the hundred years of of <laughs> history that I'm going to be talking about. I, I, I didn't want to talk about impressed. White Cube. I was like, nah, I'm done. I, I was like, wow, like we went right from the 1900 into 1990 and i was like yep. and i'm going to be talking about modernism because if Great. everything goes back to the enlightenment for e everything goes back to modernism for me <laughs> <laughs> all right so now it's time for my segment which is going to be sort of an education look at our topic um so uh, so what i'm going to be talking about is sort of uh the history of museum education like so education within the museum um and what i'm going to be starting with is sort of talking about the tension between the public and the museum my main resource because it was just kind of really wonderful it's like a critical theory based paper um it's called Poking Holes in the Oil Paintings, the Case for Critical Theory in Postmodern Art Museum Education. Um, it is by Juliet Moore Tapia. Um, it was published in Museum Education 2008. Um, so... I just looked up who Juliet Moore Tapia was because mm-hmm. this article ended up being like super cool. And so she's a Kenyan art educator um, who's par- who is a member of the National Art Education Association and the Women's Caucus. Um, ah, and yeah, the yeah. Museum Education Roundtable. She seems really amazing. This article mm-hmm. rules. And so what she's talking about is sort of highlighting the tension between the public, the museum, uh, about a century ago, right? So the 1908, 1900s, that continues to exist today between museums of art and their visiting public as an institution that embodies certain codes of behavior and culture. The museum requires its visitors to conform to its dictates. And the very character of the museum, with its emphasis on tradition and preservation, makes it resistant to modifications of these codes. Mm. Um, So this article uses deconstructionist perspective on the history of art museum to to, um, art museum education to explain and critique it. Um, So I was like, let's just define what deconstruction is. So deconstruction, this is just a definition uh, from Wikipedia. It was originated by the philosopher Jacques Derrida. Um, Deconstruction Mm -hmm. is an approach to understanding the relationship between text and meaning. So Basically, this is critical theory, right? So Derrida's approach um, consisted of conducting readings of texts, looking for things that run counter to the intended meaning or structural unity of a particular text. The purpose of deconstruction is to show that the usage of text, of language in a given text, and language as a whole, are irreducibly complex, unstable, or impossible. Throughout his readings, Derrida 
hope to show deconstruction at work. So mm-hmm. when we say text, that can be in graduate school land. Text often means basically any sort of cultural artifact. So a text can also be a painting, can be an art piece. Can be so- a body. Can be <laughs> yeah. anything, really. It can be anything, really, that is like a cultural artifact, essentially. So many debates in continental philosophy uh, surrounding ontology, epistemology, ethics, aesthetics, some word that I don't know, and philosophy of language refer to Derrida's observations. Since the 1980s, these observations inspired a range of theoretical enterprises in the humanities, including the disciplines of law, anthropology, historiography, linguistics, social linguistics, psychoanalysis, LGBT study, and feminist school of thought. So that's why I thought this was very useful to be like, okay, Okay, so deconstruction is where a lot of these critical yeah. points of view comes from. Derrida is inescapable. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's the basis for this paper, taking those views to the art museum education world. This awareness can enhance our ability to discern the political statements that underlie all aspects of the museum, from the displays of works in its galleries, to the ways in which the galleries are guarded, to the public Mm -hmm. programs of the museum education department. By identifying and critiquing these political statements, while simultaneously recognizing our own intellectual, cultural, and personal positions in relation to these statements, we can become socially engaged art educators who, through the development of meaningful, effective programs, can provide a forum in which people can make connections among the world of art, their lives, and the community at large. So, critical theory involves the recognition that organizations are not isolated entities immune from external influences. It involves the understanding of the power relations within an institution and an understanding of how the institution functions in and is shaped by the outer world. So basically, what I'm going to talk about is the history of art museum education, which really honestly sort of pieces together um, Remus's jump from where the their large block ended to the 2019 recognition that museums yeah. have a responsibility to recognizing their colonial existence, right? Not a colonial past, because they continue to hold on to these items mm-hmm. and what they can do and the social responsibility of that. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of in three schools of thoughts of the history of art museum education. Okay. The first one is the museum education as humanist pragmatism. The first of these traditions of museum education is humanist pragmatism, which linked artistic attitudes to social responsibility and, in its crudest form, assumed that the contents of museums could be used instrumentally to teach artisans and industrial designers to produce manufactured goods that would compete successfully against foreign trade. An effect of this tradition has been that museums are expected to encourage and facilitate individuals to become enlightened and civilized, while the social order is simultaneously strengthened by a reinforced cultural consensus particularly mm-hmm. important in modern capitalist social social systems. Developed and implemented by businessmen and bureaucrats of the Industrial Revolution, this tradition of humanist pragmatism led directly to the establishment of the South Kensington Museum, later the, Albert, the Victoria and Albert Museum, in 1852 in London, and the foundation of some of the major museums in the United States, including, in 1870, the Boston Museum of Fine Arts and the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Mm. So, this is based on teaching the public, like, uh, beautiful uh, methods of 
design to then mm-hmm. go on in the industrial revolution and compete in a forward trade in a capitalist social system, right? Right, right. So that ties into what Remus was saying about sort of this sort of inherent, look at the aesthetics of our culture and take that with you, right? Yeah. Um, and then the next one of the uh, types of art museum education is the museum education as idealistic inclusiveness. This tradition originated in response to the Industrial Revolution, the same phenomenon that gave rise to the last one that we just talked about. The traditions are, however, quite divergent when one looks at the manifestations in museums. The tradition of idealistic inclusiveness developed in the context of the arts and crafts movement and the progressive movement in Britain and in the United States. Fostered Mm -hmm. by the principles and practices of such social reformers as William Morris, which we'll mention again, John Dewey, and Dana that E was talking about. Mm -hmm. These movements resisted the industrialists who mass-produced Victorian goods and instead advocated for a mode of socially responsible education by which labor, organization, and art would be unified to create a harmonious society in which beauty and practicality would be inseparable. A primary motivation for educators working within this tradition was the improvement of the living conditions and educational opportunities of the lower classes, and they believed that an increase in accessibility to and understanding of the arts and museums would increase these opportunities, right? So again, Mm. that inherent value of viewing artwork. And then that all leads to museum education as aesthetic formalism. The third strand of modernist art museum education identified in this article developed as a function of the modernist philosophy advocating formalism, universalist, and autonomous interpretations of works of art right? Mm -hmm. So the art of itself, right? Working in the early 20th century, modernist artists and art critics expressed their sense of liberation and belief in the power of the avant-garde in the visual arts and communicated their opinions to influential groups of powerful people in the museum world. Formalists such as Roger Fry, creators of paintings in the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and Benjamin Ives Gilman at the Boston Museum of Fine Arts held that art transcended social concerns and Mm. advocated an approach to art museum education that was based on understanding the universal language of art. Mm. So if you understand modernism, right? So the idea of modernism is that art itself, right, is... Like, like, there's no context. It's contextless. It has its own. It can be itself no matter where it is, right? Yeah, because modernism is where we get the, like, the art for art's sake philosophy, Exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm not down for modernism. No. <laughs> Just saying everything comes it's back fascinating, to it though. for me. Yes. Um, so Benjamin Ives Gilman, secretary of the Boston Museum of Fine Arts from 1893 to 1925, is generally acknowledged in the literature of art museum education to be one of the first museum educators of the United States. So that's much later than the beginning of museums, right? That's hundreds of years later when museum educators actually start to have a presence in museums. In 1907, Gilman initiated the practice of using docents as guides to the museum, and he supervised the education activities of the museum for many years. However, he spoke unequivocally about the ancillary and inferior role of education in the museum, saying, for instance, that a museum of art is primarily an institution of cultural and only secondarily a seat of learning. 
The function of the art museum, Gilman repeatedly emphasized, is to contain and to display those artifacts that represent the pinnacle of artistic creation. Contrasting a museum of science with a museum of art, Gilman stated, museums of science aim first at abstract knowledge, museums of art at concrete satisfaction. A museum of science is in essence a school. A museum of art is in essence a temple. Education could be... Could complement, but never substitute for, pure contemplation. And the dichotomy between the spheres of art and education, between enjoyment and instruction, and between aesthetic and didactic purpose is distinct and incontrovertible. Um, yeah. So he, like, clearly thinks art is, like, Uh pure. There's a purity to it. Okay. You can't learn about it. There's this, um... It's really, really funny. Not funny, but like I got like so excited when you said um, temple because there is a 1971 article uh, by Duncan F. Cameron called The Museum, A Temple or a Forum in which – and I don't actually like this article because Cameron writes with some like really ableist metaphors and like is extremely racist about Oof. the Anacostia Neighborhood Museum. But anyway, he does talk about how museums are – temples they are public facing institutions that are temples and they are trying to be forums but you can't make a temple into a forum so it's interesting that um he's talking about Mm. um the museum is a temple the art museums are a temple yeah and this is like around he was there until 1925 Mm -hmm. right like this is going right into the modern life right so a hundred years ago (laughs) um so i guess what he's saying is like I like that a lot, that con- that contribution, mm-hmm. Remus, because there is no temple is forum. Like, there isn't an intersection, yeah. right? Because it seems like there's a large theme of most of my research is that educators in museums are constantly butting heads yes. with what the museum was originally. That's like right? a very, like, like, a truism of the field is that, like, educators and curators are, like... At, at, at odds with each other a lot uh like are often like working against yeah. each other yeah and i mean i i mean and it i don't i think i mostly mm-hmm. cut this aspect of it but like this idea of so when we introduce drawing a dialogue i say with a focus on practical application right right because po- so much of pedagogy is trying to take these like big high theory things and being like but i have a room full of kids how do i take your fancy theories and literally talk to a child about it because they are standing right in front of me right like there's this constant odds of what you want something to be the beautiful theories behind it behind an institution behind an idea and then the literal child in front of you and their social situation and their where they're coming from culturally, right? And it shouldn't be at yeah. odds, right? They should be playing with yeah. each other. But it does seem like there's like, it's like a very difficult conversation mm-hmm. to have, right? Like I had a, 
I had a article that I just completely got rid of because <laughs> I was annoyed by it. That was like, we are five people with PhDs who were talking about art, uh, about art museums and the amazing possibilities of it. And we're really annoyed that teachers keep asking us how to practically do how to practically teach our kids. They like teachers aren't thinking loftily <laughs> enough. And it's like <laughs> we have twelve yeah. hour days. <laughs> like how lofty can we be? Right? And it's not like like teachers are being are stupid. It's just like literally I have kids in front of me. I can't tell them the lofty philosophical ideas about the art museum, right? Like I just need a practical thing to do with this kid. <laughs> That, that can build, that can scaffold that idea to something larger, right? It's just, it shouldn't, it, like Remus yeah. just said, there shouldn't be a tension between educators and curators, right? This shouldn't exist. Um, do you agree with yes, that? Yes, that, that makes, makes sense. sense. Yes, I am fully on board. It's very, okay. um, the tension is an interesting thing to navigate. It's good to think loftily, but it's also good to realize that there's like, some concrete things mm -hmm. happening that need well, to that's, be, that become that are prioritized. I mean, for that's some the people, big critique know? of theory broadly, right? Is that it's like the people that get to write theory are often the least connected to the material um, things that their theory is analyzing. So, right. So to get back to what I was mm -hmm. talking about, um, <laughs> so. This tradition of aesthetic formalism continued to influence the course of museum education further into the 20th century. Walter Pack, author of The Art Museum in America, 1948, reiterated the modernist theme by saying the task of the museum is to hold the, the museum visitor before a given work of art until the master himself has had a chance to speak from his canvas. <laughs> Uh huh. <laughs> Another institution that perpetuated the tradition of aesthetic formalism was the Cleveland Museum of Art, whose curator of education, Thomas Monroe, stated that the goal of museum education was to help visitors to develop their own standards so as to make their taste in art informed and discriminating. Monroe believed that the visitor, in learning to perceive a great variety of complex and subtle qualities of line, shape, and color, he acquires visual powers which carry over into daily life. Monroe's museum education programs, which he implemented from the 1930s through the 1960s, accordingly emphasized the recognition of the formal qualities of works of art and discouraged the study of art history and studio production within the realm of the museum. Huh. Right? So it was just the formal qualities of art, not even how the art was made, right? Or where it was made, or how, or the context in hmm. which it was made. That's really interesting. Into the 1960s, into basically civil rights era, right? So, in a similar vein, Sherman Lee, director of the Cleveland Museum from 1958 until 1983 wrote, the person can be educated, can be made wiser and more informed by instruction and experience, but ultimately and properly he is on his own. Essence of this argument is that education and instruction are not really necessary for aesthetic experience of a work of art. So the art is inherent, right? Although the snippets of information that an education program provides may add an extra fillip to the viewer's understanding. 
What goes unchallenged in an, such an argument is the notion that taste, aesthetic experience, and the very meaning of art are indisputable, fixed truisms that do not vary from culture to culture, from class to class, and from age to age. Hmm. So, bringing us further forward in time, so critical theory in postmodern museum education. So we're moving from modernism to postmodernism, right. which in theory is where we are still today. Writing of the collapse of the modernist project and the shift f towards a postmodernist society, Terry Eagleton in 1992 suggests that modernism failed at its, as a result of its own internal contradictions mm. in bracketing off the real social world, establishing a critical negating distance between itself and the ruling social order, modernism must simultaneously bracket off the political forces which seek to transform that order. By removing itself from society into its own impermeable space, the modernist pr paradoxically reproduces, indeed intensifies, the very illusion of aesthetic autonomy which marks the bourgeois humanist order it also protests against. In the course of its development within the context of the modernist museum, the field of modernist museum education had, by a kind of historic default, to manifest characteristics of one of the three approaches described above. So, this time that uh, was just mentioned, right? That 1983, when this Cleveland director um, stepped yeah. down from talking about this like inherent fixed truism of art, of the aesthetic experience. Uh -huh. In 1984, the Getty Center for Education and the Arts commissioned two people, Elliot Eisner and Stephen Dobbs, to conduct a study in to elevate the museum education profession. Their report, The Uncertain Profession, Observations of the State of Museum Education in 20 American Art Museum was published two years later in 1986. They found that there was no consensus on aims, an absence of standards for preparation, an inadequate network of communication, insufficient staffing and resources, limited career opportunities, the perception of little political power among hmm. museum educators, and a lack of sufficient intellectual base for the field. So... <laughs> There's a big, 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 big turning point in 1986, right? Which brings us to Remus's 1990 yes. moment, right? So there's this big realization where museum education completely blows <laughs> and there needs to be some sort of discussion on what we would need to move forward, on agreements on what we should move forward with, right? Yeah. So I'm still on this paper, the poking holes in the in oil paintings, which I don't actually think I ever even <laughs> said the name of the paper. It's called Poking Holes in the Oil Paintings, A Case for Critical Theory in Postmodern Art Museum Education. And so now the paper uh, then goes on to define postmodernism thought. But I'm going to jump ahead to the actual changes she, she suggestions in art museum okay. education. So strategies of postmodern art museum yeah. education. A postmodernist museum education is one that acknowledges how the museum and the museum education fit into contexts of shifting cultural and sociopolitical structures, and one that addresses issues associated with these new configurations. Postmodernist 
museum educators are concerned with developing pedagogical approaches that both serve as cultural critiques and encourage museum audiences to develop senses of connectedness among themselves, the objects in the museum, and the world at large. In terms of museum education programs, these characteristics of postmodernism can translate into activities that incorporate personal narratives, collaboration, interplay between high and low culture, multiple interpretations, popular culture, meta-texts and inter- intertextuality, and de-sanctification of the museum space. So no longer having it be a sanctuary, have uh, have it be sanitary, right. right? Operating as strategies of postmodernist pedagogy, such activities question issues of representation, power, and authority, and thereby subvert the embedded sociocultural assumptions and behaviors that have been associated with the modernist museum. Mm. And honestly, neither of us have really mentioned comics yet in this in our wonderful comics podcast, but again, sh- this she's talking about how the interplay between high and low culture and how popular culture and this kind of meta text can become a way of subverting the art museum right i'm actually going to be doing a teaching in february something about creating comics within the art museum at the RISD art museum coming oh, up oh good um, yeah, as as sort of an effort to subvert this stuff, right? Yeah, I and I was I was gonna talk a little bit about the comic stuff I did when I worked at RISD, but I didn't want to take too much time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think I think it's really important. I mean, I really love how she. I mean, again, I'm keep coming back to that collaboration, interplay between high and low culture, yeah. personal yeah. narratives. All of that is so uh-huh. so integrated in what comics are that I just. I love how well that can fit into what we're talking about. Yeah, right? 100%. Um, by casting art museum education within the framework of postmodern challenge and inquiry, interpretations of art can take place within the wider context of the everyday life of the visitor. Thus, educational approaches to the objects in the museum can be framed in terms of postmodernist challenges to universalism and grand narratives and can lead to such programmatic features as collaborations among school, community, and museum, shared processes of decision-making, and the equal provision of respectful forms, forums for all voices and perspectives. Now she has such a... I just... Love these kind of questions. So, these postmodern practices foster questions such as, who does the work address? For whom was it made? For whom is it exhibited? Who benefits from it? Who is excluded? Both from actually viewing it and from understanding the cultural and intellectual works it represents. Other questions could include, whose art history benefits this as a work of art? On what basis is this a work of art? How can this work of art be recontextualized so that it is seen as a product of its culture? How can multiple interpretations dialogue with each other to provide more holistic understandings of art, individuals, and cultures? This strategy of deconstructive inquiry challenges modernist modes of interpretation and traditional ways of seeing the museum itself. Enabled by this type of questioning strategy, the postmodernist museum educator can help to bring into the museum the basis for cultural politics and the struggle for power that has opened up to include the issues of language and identity. Mm. So that concludes that article by Juliet Moore Tapia. I think it's just just wonderful. Um, so that's from 2008. So, I mean, hopefully it sounds like 
these kind of ideas are really, really being integrated, right? Yeah. So my next few papers, I'm sort of going to rapid fire through them, right? So that's all our theory, right? Yeah. This, these are wonderful ideas, but how can this become implemented? So the next paper is called Advocacy for Education in Museums by Barbara Franco. And a lot of it really just has to do with how do you get teachers and schools to recognize that they should come to museums for education, right? So we're going to start to pull back and become more practical in what we're talking about, right? Yeah, yeah. And practical, I don't mean practical as in a word that's insulting theory. Right. I just mean literally the definition of in practice. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Right? So that's like a huge thing is that like... um and I, I, this is, you know, something I think, like, I think about and talk because I am a theorist and I love theory and I think we need theory, but theory needs to have sort of a reciprocal relationship with practice where like, and, you know, in order to sort of do the revolution, you need to have a little bit of the theory to help shape the revolution, but then you need to actually do the revolution. <laughs> like, exactly. There's, there's a back and forth that needs to be happening constantly. Right. If it doesn't happen, it's, yeah, exactly. I've awesome. Um, so, from Advocacy for Education in Museums. Museum education finds itself in the midst... Oh, so this is from uh, 2010. Okay, so just a, a couple of years later from the paper that we just talked about. Museum education finds itself in the midst of significant changes as both the museum and education fields respond to internal and external challenges that require new approaches. Today, museums recognize that the choice is no longer theirs and that they must challenge to adapt to new economic realities. So again, 2010, this is going to be right after, right during the Great Recession, right? Decreasing public and private support comes at the same time societal changes demand mm -hmm. that educational institutions of all kinds prepare young people for careers and jobs requiring new and expanded skills to navigate the complexities of expanding sources of information. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They're essentially saying schools are starting to realize we need to be, te we can't be teaching kids facts because facts come on the internet immediately, right? <laughs> we need to be teaching them other sort, other types of right. skills, right? This is like, honestly, like the last 10 years of education, real, this shift of what are we actually teaching kids if we aren't teaching them basic facts getting them to memorize that stuff, what is it that we're teaching them? Beverly Shepard has described the quandary of art museum educators who, on the one hand, are poised to provide many of the educational experiences that support lifelong 21st century learners, but at the same time face barriers to full collaboration with a struggling educational system that has become focused on test-driven content and basic skills. While K-12 education policy dictates emphasis on the three R's of reading, writing, and arithmetic, businesses, she tells us, seize the need for a future workforce educated in the four C's, communication skills, critical theory, collaboration, and creativity. She's talking about tech workers, right? Yes. I'm not too interested in school as only being existing so kids can get jobs. Yeah. But I can see in 2010... During the Great Recession, where a, not, a lot of people were being laid off, how that would suddenly become a very real concern, right? Making sure kids can work. It, that's like such an interesting, because that was the time period where I was going into college and the conversation was 100% like, 
entirely just professionalization right like skill building to put on your resume like there was no like just figure out what you like it was you need to build a resume to get hired like it was very right it's just it suddenly becomes almost too practical yeah 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 yeah. (laughs) right because that's not what life should be (laughs) and i mean as a person who's still like who teaches college students that's still very much like my students came up through grade school with that attitude so they expect everything to be geared Uh towards their like building their resume and honestly that's the constant conversation about art school right Mm -hmm. what's the value of art school if it isn't teaching us a direct job skills which is a another podcast (laughs) um the disconnect between museum educators and teachers in K-12 education is not necessarily new, but many are concerned that the divide is growing. Field trips, the staple of museum education and the major point of intersection with many students, is being threatened by the cost of transportation, lack of time, and the emphasis on standardized skill testing. Right? So, this field trips to museums are dropping off because there's so much of a focus on making sure kids can pass these tests, Mm -hmm. right? So if a day of learning doesn't directly answer certain questions that'll be on a test, it feels like lost time. right? So the next thing that we're going to be getting into is exactly what we're talking about, right? The problems of how historically museums were set up, Mm -hmm. butting heads with the direction that educators want to go in, mm-hmm. right? So this is an article from 2009, Presenting Cultural Artifacts in the Art Museum, a university-museum collaboration. It was published in Art Education. It's by Sheng Quan Chung. Okay. With increasing emphasis on multicultural art education and integrative pedagogy, Educators have incorporated community resources, such as cultural artifacts exhibited in art museums, to enrich their programs. Cultural artifacts are human-made objects which generally reveal historic information about cultural values, beliefs, and traditions. Cultural artifacts are accessible to school children because they are concrete manifestations of artistic expression, cultural heritage, scientific discovery, and socio-political development. Therefore, they can be effectively used to explain complex concepts, values, traditions, and the ideas from various cultures to enhance learning experiences. A contextual exploration using a variety of cultural artifacts thus can foster historic think- historical thinking and multicultural literacy understanding while helping students understand the diverse visual world around them. Okay, so what, this ar- what that paragraph that I just said is saying mm-hmm. is trying to move from looking at an object by, from a... When we say cultural artifact, I I am going to say we are likely talking about a colonial stolen thing. Yeah. Right? Um, Yep, 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 yep. But what this person is trying to communicate is talk about how these works can be used in ways that is not historically how they were set up to be. Mm. Right? Nonetheless, several art educators and scholars identify issues and problems associated with the multicultural art appreciation and particularly ways in which art museums display cultural artifacts as fine art objects. Right? Okay. Although many historical objects are presented in art museums because of their social, religious, utilitarian, and technological significance, they are usually approached from a formalist standpoint and displayed as a fine art objects in a decontextualized fashion. Okay. So what this person is saying is there is a lot of value 
and using these objects in an educational way, mm. right? Because they can help explain complex concepts with like a visual way of seeing that for like a younger audience, right? The the cultural artifacts themselves or Yeah. So mm. it's like if you bring your students to the museum, if you as an educator do a lot of work, right? Because the museum is not doing this work. Right. Okay. Hmm. What do you have? What do you think about that? That's the end of that. It's almost like a practical just conversation. Yeah, we've just been we you know, we've obviously been talking a lot about decolonization. Um, and I feel like a conversation we had in the semester at one point about like, who like, why we want to learn like the idea that everything is sort of like up for universal education in the first place, like especially when it comes to like indigenous cultural practices, like, I don't know. I think like one of my classmates basically was like, oh, but if we like give everything back, then we won't be able to learn it about it. But maybe we don't need to learn it unless it's on their terms. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I just feel like I don't know if the practical benefits of like having your students see the artifacts outweighs like the urgency to put them back, like to give put them in a context where they belong. You know what I mean? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I, I just no, I absolutely agree with yeah, that. Yeah, it it just it feels like like that's such a like that's such a, like a Eurocentric Enlightenment argument to be like, oh, but we need to learn this. I'm like, but maybe we don't need to learn this one. Like, <laughs> I mean, I'm going to go out on a limb and saying Shang Quan Chung might be coming oh yeah, from a different certainly, place. certainly. But um, but I'm gonna look them up. Yeah, so he's part of the National Art Education Association yeah. (NEAE), social reconstructionist in art education. Mm -hmm is part of what his interest is in. Yeah. Computer mediated art education, Asian aesthetics, gender and sexuality. He lists as mm. his interests of um, study. Interesting. No, I'd be interested to read like more of what he has to say about this kind of stuff. Uh, obviously mm -hmm. it's always hard to work from these little paragraphs. Yeah. No, I mean, I think I agree with you. I think I'm just throwing out there. Um, I mean, I had a lot of issues uh, researching for this. When I finally found that first article we found, it was like such a relief, yeah. right? Because at this point, it was just sort of this weird mess of art educators really trying to figure out how to use museums, yeah. right? Because they want to bring students to museums. And you see that I said an article advocating for bringing students to a museum. But what I'm saying is that we're just butting heads with the way museums are set up. Yeah. Like, what do art educators want to do? 100%. I don't know if art educators necessarily want to only be going to the art museum for aesthetic qualities without recognizing the colonial history of yeah, it all, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I fully agree with you. So I do believe that you yeah. should be And obviously, I'm, like, coming at it from the museum practitioner side of, like, <laughs> what do we do with yeah, this stuff? Yeah, and I guess I'm talking about it as an art teacher, yeah. right? yeah. Like, if you're going to go to the museum, do you ignore that wing of the... Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> do you only go to the modernist paintings? Or, like, what it's Yeah, such a, what do you do with like yourself? It's such a, com a complex conversation, for sure. Yeah, but I'm into um, not having... I, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I, I was like, I'm not into not having it and only having 2019 American artists. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, you know, there's, like, 
and, and I'll probably cut this because I feel like we're getting off into it, but I think like a lot of what is like also the fact that um, in terms of contemporary acquisitions, like there are contemporary native artists, for instance, that could be like the museums could acquire their work, uh, but they don't right. <laughs> because it's more convenient to just be like, here's something from a hundred years ago or whatever that like plays into this narrative. Yeah. And it fits into this, um, idea the story that native americans don't exist yeah, anymore 100%. that they only exist in like this frozen past oh when yeah there are native american artists who are working today right now hold on i just remembered there's this exhibition that we talked about at i th- i want to say the natural history museum i'm gonna see if i can track it down um yes it was the museum of natural history okay they did this um they did this new um you know how the museum of natural history in new york has the dioramas of like indigenous quote-unquote cultures with like the wax sculptures of like different groups and stuff um i have no idea i don't go to natural history museums but i believe okay the museum of natural history in new york they have like these giant dioramas of like different indigenous groups oh and they're from like a century ago right like they're old okay yeah i do know what you're talking about because i saw it in a television show so what they did um, this exhibition that came that started, um, I, I think last year. I'm gonna try. There's like a video about it that we watched in class, where they basically they couldn't like remove the exhibition and they didn't like want to erase what was like basically that they're like really bad and inaccurate and stuff. So what they've done is they've put labels on the glass, like the um like clear labels, so you can read the text but like still see through into the exhibition, basically highlighting all the inaccuracies and providing correct information. And it's, like, really interesting, and it made a lot of people, like, really, really mad. (laughs) Um, I mean, it's really interesting to me about how a museum is like, oh, no, we have to preserve our own history, even if it's wrong. Yeah, I can't, there was a- (laughs) Was a weird There was, like, a (laughs) justified, the video, like, explained why they didn't take it out. I think it was, like, it would be too costly or something. But the, it is, like, a really – like, the way that they are trying to sort of address it is really interesting. And there's been, like, a lot of pushback because um, – and this is something we, like, talked about in class is that, like um, – yeah, I have – I found a Medium article about it I can link um, where they literally – it's, like, a big label on the scene that says, reconsidering this scene. And it, like, basically breaks down everything. Mm. Um, but, like, people who, you know, grew up with a certain history – um, and they want the museum to continue to reinforce that history when they're confronted by, um, like, this sort of thing. They get really mad. So there's been, like, a lot of pushback from people that are like, this is revisionist. Like, there's nothing wrong with the scene, blah, blah, blah. Um, so it is, like, super interesting, this tension also when it comes to, like, this sort of, like, the ethnographic material specifically. When museums are addressing colonization, there's, like... It's always really intense because, um, you know, we're, we're taught a certain narrative growing up and people don't want to find out that they were wrong, basically. I'm imagining that you're referring to white yeah. people. Well, in, yeah, like your, Amer- American in general or- also. Yeah. Just because something is old doesn't necessarily mean it was valuable. Yeah. <laughs> it's my burn. All right. So I have just a couple papers left. I have one called Representing Slavery, Underserved Questions in Museum Collections. 
so it's by C. Levinson, mm-hmm. and this article looks at the notion of what, not who, is underserved in museum education. Um, and this is published in the stu- Studies of Art Education um, in 2014. Issues of race, power, and the legacy of slavery and empire are presented within many collections of European and American art. These issues relate to all audiences as they continue to shape history and lived experience. Lonnie Bunch, founding director of the National Museum of African American History and Culture, argued that what is missing in museums is a new synthesis, a new integration that encourages visitors to see that exploring issues of race is essential to our understanding of American culture. The Yale Center for British Art is a museum that reflects a predominantly white cultural legacy while existing within a city that has a large black population. The black figures within the collection are often depicted in marginalized positions of servitude and slavery and reflect 18th century British attitudes. This must be addressed in order to provide new layers of interpretation, both personal and communal. So when they say uh, reflect 18th century British attitudes, I'm assuming um, not necessarily the attitudes of the enslaved peoples. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. uh, but, you know, uh, it's a positive paper, yeah. right? Um, so, unfreezing the past. In creating Black Americans, African American history and its meaning, Nell Painter stated, contrary to what many people assume, history exists in two time frames, the past and the present. Historical narrative changes over time. What we want to know about the past at one point in time differs from what we wanted to know at an earlier point, or for that matter, what we will want to know in the future. Mm. When putting of works of art on display, this context must be taken into account. Slavery and portraiture in Atlantic Britain emerged from the sense that the institutions of slavery and racial difference offer a crucial historical lens through which to understand and represent and present the rich collections of the museum today. So what they're what they're talking about is re- figuring out how to represent the works that the museum already has, right? So I'm imagining I'm not um there aren't samples of these paintings, but I imagine you can imagine like a painting of like a rich family right. with um an enslaved person sort of standing behind them to show that how they're how rich they are, right? It's like yeah. in addition to um, their jewelry, what they're wearing, their clothing, and it just shows their position of power. There was an example right? in um, that New York Times article I talked about where the the labels where they're like rewriting the labels to show the realities of slave labor. One of the examples was a portrait of a Boston aristocrat, like a person from a Boston aristocratic family, where you could see a ship in the background. And the ship was like a trader ship, basically. Yeah. So it's it is it's pretty common, right? It shows wealth. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. But these are human figures in these paintings, right? And so I th- think I don't want to put words into the author's mouth, but I think what she's talking about, or they, I don't know their gender. Um, what they're talking about is how can you talk about that figure in these paintings? Right. How can you talk about that ship in these paintings? Right. right? Again. It's like that other article in which this is the museum we're stuck with. Right. <laughs> How can we work with it? Which is unfortunate, right? It's not, I mean, maybe it is extremely radical. I don't want to 
um, I don't want to impose my ideas onto what this person is writing about. I don't know where they're coming from. Right. Right. I don't want to say it's not radical because it is be, it can be, but there's such a more radical and way in which we can do this, mm-hmm. right? We can decolonize and return um, objects, right? We can just remove these paintings, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so there's a few more. I, I skip basically the entire paper. I don't, I don't want to come off like I'm being disrespectful to this paper. Um, because I think it's very valuable, right? But I skipped to the implications and conclusion. Um, museum educators are responsible for helping audiences engage with and find ways into the collections of our respective institutions, right? Mm-hmm. They're not changing the institutions, but they're helping audiences engage and find ways to become part of this institution. Many, if not most, collections of European art hold traces, depictions, and legacies of colonialism and subjugation. Mm-hmm. Confronting this problematic imagery requires new questions, new interpretations, and new strategies. How can we create ways to productively engage with racialized imperial content? Can we uncover lost lives and forge new relationships between the underserved individuals in our objects and those who come to see them. The legacies of slavery appear in museum walls and belong to all of us. By applying the term of underserved to, broadly speaking, the works of art, historical figures, interpretive questions, and museum visitors, this article has attempted to address these challenges. Mm -hmm. Confronting dominant forms of visual narrative, such as portrait painting, requires an ability to see the flexible history of objects Mm. and understanding that new meanings are created throughout the life of an object up to the present day. With that understanding, museum educators can provide opportunities to face the uncomfortable imagery of imperial power and racialized subjugation that permeate collections with 21st century eyes. And here is actually... Um, the part of the article that I'm actually very interested in talking about. So as educators, we cannot assume that simply bringing ethnically diverse inner city students to museums will serve an underserved need. Many debates about culturally relevant teaching have focused on selecting content that reflects the cultural identity of students. Culturally responsive teaching is based on the assumption that when academic knowledge and skills are situated within the lived experience and frames of the reference of students, they are more personally meaningful, have higher interest appeal, and are learned more easily and thoroughly. The academic achievement of ethnically diverse students will improve when they are taught through their own cultural experiential filters. Yet, it is essential that we acknowledge that the value and diverse perspectives and cultural lenses that students bring with them, we need this knowledge to forge new meanings. Mm. So the museum needs that knowledge. Yes. I would argue by asking them to bring their own lived experiences and frames of reference to new and unfamiliar, even underserved content, we encourage students to become active agents and negotiators of history. Uh, Frankel argued that by making the museum a place of uncertainty, we allow time and space for difficult knowledge to be absorbed, helping students find agency and voice in the process. As global citizens, we encourage students to have a global and positional perspective. If we do not, we risk keeping the master narrative of Western art history intact, unquestioned, and unchanging over time. Mm. I just, I really like the idea that just bringing in underserved kids, like, Mm -hmm. 
to your museum is not going to be effective. In fact, it could be damaging. Yeah. Right. If the only black figures that they're viewing in these paintings are um, oppressed, how is that actually going to be helping anyone? Yeah. And there's also like the other part of that conversation is how they're treated by the museum itself as an institution, because there's been like a lot of issues with like the boston um uh-huh the boston mfa last yeah summer. with those uh black students that uh the security guard was incredibly racist to and they were all like well we're never going to come to a museum again yep so we two summers ago me and a colleague brought a bunch of kids to the boston mfa and this past summer we did not yeah so it's you know like so. just you're it's 100 percent like that's 100 percent accurate you can't just bringing them there does it like like a, that's like not actually addressing anything <laughs> that's and we're looking at it from I think I think the thing that's really difficult is it's it's putting a lot of work on the educators. Right? Mm. When the museums are the ones with all these objects, but it's putting a lot of work on educators because the museum isn't necessarily doing this work. Yes. And I think I'm gonna end there. Oh. So it seems like if we're moving into our conclusion segment, so what did we learn? What are continuing questions? What are our takeaways? It seems like from my segment, those museums still aren't set up in a way that I feel like is serving the value for students. I'm just going to say that outright. <laughs> yeah, no, 100%. <laughs> yeah, because it seems like so much of what we have been talking about is trying to use what the museum has completely outside of the context that the museum has created. Yes. Right? Yeah, and that's like, what we were sort of talking about that tension is that um a lot so a lot of like the new museology writings that we were reading a lot of them were literally being like cu curators need to think about how these things are being received like and design more like open um educate like do visitor research and design like open education um spaces and like accept the fact that people come to museums for different reasons and aren't going to react mm. the way you want them to react sometimes is like one of the big ongoing conversations. Mm, I like that. Does that fit into what your conclusions are? Do you have any conclusions? Yeah, here? I mean, I was just going to talk about like, I, I think I, I, the reason I also really want to talk about this in um, museums in this context in general is because like, again, sort of building on that, like can't the conversation about the canon is about like museums culturally shape knowledge, whether we re like see that consciously happening or not. Um, and like, so the aesthetic and the art practices that we think that culturally are ingrained as like good are naturalized as quote good or whatever, um, comes sort of through that. So like, I'm less interested in like, I know, like, when we talk about like comics, I think like we hit on this in your segment really nicely, which is that like, when I'm interested in comics and museums, I'm thinking about comics as like a tool. And, like, mm. how you talked about with that first article, the way comics really, like, spoke to a lot of those different ideas about, like, how to, like, alter interactions with museums. Um, yeah. And, and, like, art making practices. Because I think both of us are, like, really more interested in, like, art making practices than, like, putting comic <laughs> no, pages on the gallery wall. Like, no. <laughs> <laughs> so that's sort of where I'm coming from with this, basically. Awesome. Yeah. I'm yeah, I get it too. Yeah. It's like this weird reality that we have that we're contending with. Yeah, and like when I when I worked at RISD, I used a lot of comic drawing to try to like get folks to draw because they were like understandably hesitant. So I would do like mm -hmm. jams and games and stuff like that with the comics and that worked really well. Mm-hmm. And 
I think it's fair to acknowledge that we are talking about institutions that are hundreds of years yeah. old, hundreds and hundreds of years old. And I can understand why maybe it's hard to change at a drop of a hat, right? I but mean, I yeah. think it's again, new museology, 30 years. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> the Louvre opened 300 years ago. <laughs> like, but I mean, I think I'm down for figuring out how to a rehaul of it all you know yeah i think and that's sort of where the field is at also is like a lot of us are talking like where do we go next like what Mm -hmm. is a museum like that's like that's the thing Mm -hmm. is like no one can agree on what a museum is in the first place so yeah and it's funny how sometimes i do think of museums as like a library yeah as like and what is a library right yeah yeah, yeah. so sometimes i'm like it's a archive Mm -hmm. of these physical objects that I believe should be archived, right? Yeah. I believe some paintings and sculptures should be held on to and taken care of. Yeah. But like, li- that's not necessarily what library collections are. They're not necessarily archives. They're th- they want to be borrowed. They want to be used. Right. 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 No, I think, and um, I I think museums could learn a lot from libraries as sort of yeah. my classmate has reminded us a lot. Like, I don't know. The, the It's like a, those things are all related. Those things are all definitely related. Yeah. I, and I think, I think there, I think there's a few uses to it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, one final shout out. I forgot to include this in my segment, so I might as well stick it in conclusion here is there's a, like a little children's book that I got at Barnes and Noble in the new graphic novel kids section it's called journey through the hermitage (gasps) queen of the tulips and it's by pomodor and agapova and it's just like a beautiful little graphic novel about these two kids just exploring this art museum and having conversations with the art pieces and it's just quite lovely so and it's for ages six and up um i just think that's lovely and also i know junji ito i have i don't have the book yet but junji ito the manga cartoonist from uh japan who does like a lot of um horror comics that you might know of yes like uzumaki and stuff he has one called cats of the louvre right where he's like yeah drawing cats and i actually don't know if it's an art book or if it's actually a book book but he's like drawing louvre paintings and so these are two examples of sort of that into the integration of graphic novels with because i don't think necessarily cartoonists or comic books have to be opposed no um in absolute opposition of art museums yeah um so those are just two examples of graphic novels that you can go get right awesome so now it's time for letters to the editor our regular segment where we revisit past topics and add new research and sometimes we actually read email you've sent us uh, you can send us letters at drawingadialogue at gmail.com. Do you have anything for letters to the editor, E? Nope, not this time. All right. <laughs> Either do I. Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> I could have saved those books for this segment. I, I know. I was like, that. you sort of um, did your letters to the editor early. It's fine. Yeah, who cares? All right. So I want to say thank you to Downtown Boys for their song Wave of History. It's off their album Full Communism. You can get it at their band camp. Um, you can get our show notes, uh, all the citations for the podcast on drawingadialogue.com, um, which is hosted, of course, as always, by Kathy's website, comicarted.com, which is a very good website. 
Oh, thank you. You can email us again at drawingadialogue at gmail.com. You can tweet us at draw a dialogue. You can follow me at E-H-E-T-J-A, E-H-E-T-J-A. And you can follow me at Kathy G. John, C-A-T-H-Y-G-J-O-H-N on Twitter and on Instagram. I also want to plug my graphic novel, The Breakaways. Makes a good kid's uh, gift. Yes, yes, yes. Check it out. Yes. So, uh, what are you reading, E? Oh, I did not prepare for this segment at all. Um, so, right now it's finals, which means that mostly oh, no. I'm doing a lot of... It's finals and also Comic Arts LA, uh, as we're recording, is going to be this weekend. So, I have been just sort of swamped and dying. Um, but I guess the new Till Death Do Us Blart came out. <laughs> and I listened to that last no night. No spoilers. <laughs> it was good. I've been I've been re-listening to them all. I just finished 2017. <laughs> so the till for our listeners who may not know, Till Death Do Us Blart is a podcast um that comes out once a year on Thanksgiving, where uh the McElroy brothers and the two uh nice fellows who host uh the worst idea ever, whose names I don't remember off the top of my head um guy and tim guy and tim but i don't know the last names guy montgomery Guy montgomery and tim they they get together and and they watch paul blart mall cop 2 and then they talk about it and they do this once a year and it's called till death do us blurt and it's very funny (laughs) what if what have you been reading kathy um i've been reading uh ta-nehisi coates's new novel it's his first novel uh... um called the water dancer I'm about 50 pages in. It's great. Um, it's about an America in Virginia um, during slavery. Um, and the main character is an enslaved young man. Um, and huh. it's sort of, um, it's, it's just like a beautiful way of creating new narratives and new fiction um, from a perspective that hasn't necessarily been written about, yeah. um, a lot. Um, and it's really fantastic. So I would recommend it, even though it's the first 50 pages. It, Oprah started her book club again just for this book. Wow. So my guess is um, it's a good one. And also, you can probably find a pretty cheap copy because there's probably millions and millions printed out there. So, yeah. So that's Ta-Nehisi Coates's uh, The Water Dancer. So uh, thank you for listening to Drawing a Dialogue. Uh, my name is Kathy G. Johnson. Oh, I'm Remus Jackson. Farewell to our intrepid volunteers. Bye.